Well, it is lovely to be back um, with you here in Great Vic. Um, some of you will know me, um, some of you won't know me. Um, some of you have already been inflicted with my Bible teaching uh, earlier this uh, calendar year or this uh, academic year with the Young Adults Weekend, but it's great to see uh, so much new life uh, about uh, Great Victoria Street. Um, it's also great to see some of the old life is still here as well. Um, so it's brilliant to be here with you. Um, as Steve said, Tracy's not uh, feeling well, so she's sorry she can't be here, and she sends her apologies and her love, and uh, she's trying not to be too jealous that I'm here and she's not, um, but it's a joy to be with you all um, this morning. I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to the book of Psalms. Um, we are going to try to make our way through all 150, and we're going to do a, something of an overview sermon um, on the book of Psalms um, this morning, so please turn there. Uh, please be prepared to uh, flick back and forward um, as may be helpful um, for you following along. There are many things that, that, that on their own are beautiful, um, but you place lots of them together and it creates beauty of a different degree. So a single bird, for example, intriguing to watch as it flits through the air, maybe in your garden, going to the bird feeder and back, to the bird feeder and back. But a flock of them, of thousands of them in the sky, was mesmerizing. A, a single tree towering high above you is majestic. But seeing thousands of them stretching in every direction as far as the eye can see, well, that's awe-inspiring. A single snowflake, it's delicate, it's intricate, it's unique. But billions of them together completely alter the landscape. Beautiful in their own right, but place lots of them together and it creates a beauty of a different order. And so it is with the Psalms. A single Psalm is a piece of art worthy of study in its own right, beautiful all on its own. But whenever we view all 150 together as a purposefully ordered collection, another degree of beauty shines forth. And our aim today is to see this, to see this other degree of beauty by viewing the Psalms as a whole. And so we're going to take three steps on this journey today. Um, step one will be a brief presentation of evidence for reading the Psalms as a book. Step two will be an outline of the story this book tells. And then step three will be a consideration of the relevance of all that is said for us today. So step one the evidence. The first step we need to take is assessing the evidence uh, for reading 150 individual poems as a book. Uh, and there are four pieces of evidence I'm going to put before you today. Uh, this might be a little bit tough going initially, but stay with me because the payoff will be worth it. Um, you want to consider yourself Sherlock Holmes this morning. Uh, I'm going to put four pieces of evidence before you. You're going to want to consider each piece of evidence and then draw a conclusion. So let me present Exhibit A. The book of Psalms has an introduction. Psalms 1 and 2, which we've had read for us already this morning. Psalms 1 and 2 form a two-part introduction to the Psalter. This is clear by the fact that they are missing a, a title or a, a superscription. If you look at Psalm 3, you'll see that it belongs to David. You'll see that at the beginning, a Psalm of David. Psalm 4, a Psalm of David. Psalm 5, a Psalm of David. On and on I could go through the first 41 Psalms. All of them 
are ascribed to David except for these first two. Among many other links, Psalms 1 and 2 uh, have this very significant link. The very beginning of Psalm 1 begins with, Blessed is the man. Psalm 2 ends with, Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So what I'm saying is that these two Psalms seem to be set apart from everything else that follows. They, they form an introduction to the book of Psalms. Exhibit B, the book of Psalms has a conclusion. If you were to flick through to Psalm 146 to Psalm 145, you'll see that they form a unique conclusion. All of these Psalms begin and end with what has been translated in our Bibles as praise the Lord, praise the Lord. It's a collection of five Psalms, the only collection that all begin and end with praise the Lord. This is a translation of the Hebrew word hallelujah. And and so what we have are five Psalms at the end set apart from everything that precedes it. Two at the beginning, five at the end. Exhibit C. The book of Psalms has five chapters or five books. I, I wonder if you ever noticed this as you've read through the book of Psalms. Every now and again it says book two, book three, book four. So if you want to turn to Psalm 41, you want to notice two things here. And we're going to work our way through all of these junctures. Psalm 41 and verse 13. The psalm ends with a doxology. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Your Bible then helps you by saying book two, hopefully, and then Psalm 42 begins. That's book two. Something similar happens again. Keep flicking. Psalm 72. Psalm 72 verses 18 and 19. And notice the similarity um, between this and the last doxology that we read. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who alone does wondrous things. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And then we see that book three begins. Keep flicking. Flick to Psalm 89. Your Bibles will be well thumbed this morning. Psalm 89 and verse 52. Another doxology. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Then we have book four begins. Keep flicking. Psalm 106. Very end of Psalm 106. Verse 48, blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Let all the people say, amen, praise the Lord. Then book five begins. And then one final time, flick forward to Psalm 145. Verse 21, we have another doxology. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his, name, his holy name forever and ever. And then we're into that conclusion in Psalm 146. So what we have is a doxology at the end of each book and then a new book begins again and again, five times. In addition to this, the ancient manuscripts that contain the book of Psalms, they were all divided onto five separate scrolls. Book one was on one scroll, 
book two was on another scroll, book three on a third scroll, and so on. Exhibit C, there's, there's five sections that the book of Psalms is divided into. And then exhibit D, the book of Psalms is all mixed up. Ancient collections of poetry order their material very differently from how the material is ordered in our book of Psalms. Ancient collections of poetry tended to keep all the different types of poems together in one place. So all the hymns of praise were collected together in one place. All the hymns of lament were collected together in one place. All the wisdom songs were collected together in one place. All of the royal hymns were collected together in one place. But the book of Psalms doesn't do that. It has them all mixed up together. And and what this suggests is that there was a different purpose at work in ordering it. A different purpose from how other ancient poetry was collected together. So piecing together these four strands of evidence, I think we can say that what we have is a book of Psalms. You walk into any Waterstone store, you pick up a book off the shelf, you flick through it, what will you find? You'll find introductory material, several movements in the main body, and then concluding material. And there will be an agenda that orders all of that content. The evidence suggests that that's what we have here in the book of Psalms. An introduction, movements through the middle, conclusion, and some agenda ordering all of that. So step one is complete. Are you still with me? Steve is. I don't know about anybody else. (laughs) Great. Step two, the story. The second step in this journey is to discern what the story of this book might be. Uh, And the five books that I've mentioned already give us some help. So here's the outline of the story, I think. Book one, we have the rise of the king, Psalms 1 to 41. The introduction to the book of Psalms, Psalms 1 and 2, describe one person. Psalm 1 describes him as the person who meditates on the scriptures. Psalm 2 describes him as the king enthroned in Zion. But if we read these two Psalms in light of the rest of scripture, I think we see that they're speaking about one person. For example, Deuteronomy 17 contains laws for the king. It commands the king to meditate on Scripture, to read the Scriptures, to know the Scriptures. And so what we see is that this introduction is telling us to look for a righteous king. This is who Psalms 1 and 2 are talking about, the king who would behave as he should. The rest of book 1 then connects this king to King David. Throughout book 1, it is consistently King David who, who fights and defeats the wicked with the help of God. It's for this reason that David can declare that God has set him in his presence forevermore in Psalm 41 verse 12. Most say that that's some kind of fulfillment of chapter 2 verse 6, where Yahweh promises to set his king in his presence. So book 1 retells the rise of the king, the rise of King David in particular. Book 2, Psalms 42 to 72, well, it continues the story of book 1, but it expands it from the king to the kingdom. This is seen initially in a move from David being connected to the Psalms to the sons of Korah being connected to the Psalms. So if you look at the opening Psalms of book 2, you'll see it's the sons of Korah who have authored those Psalms. They were the religious leaders in Israel. 
Uh, and so what we see in book two is the community is being led in worship by the religious leaders. Towards the end of book two, we then find two important psalms. First of all, Psalm 68. Psalm 68 traces the journey of the Ark of the Covenant from Sinai to Jerusalem. This Ark symbolizes God's presence, first in the tabernacle in the wilderness, but now in the temple in Jerusalem. God lives with His people. God is enthroned in Jerusalem. This psalm is then followed by Psalm 72. There, the Davidic king morphs into Davidic kingship. The, the psalm, Psalm 72, takes the form of a prayer, a prayer for succeeding generations of Davidic kings, praying that they might be the righteous king that is expected. Book 2 witnesses to the rise of the kingdom. But tragedy strikes in book 3. Book 3 poetically reflects on the exile. That, that moment when Israel's capital, Jerusalem, was destroyed by the Babylonians. Book 3 opens with Psalm 73, a psalm that explicitly wrestles with suffering in a world controlled by a good God. There's then a number of communal laments that the community are lamenting together, and they find their pain in the destruction of Jerusalem. Look at Psalm 74, for example. Psalm 74, verses 7 and 8. Psalmist writes, They set your sanctuary on fire. They profaned the dwelling place of your name, bringing it down to the ground. They said to themselves, We will utterly subdue them. They burned all the meeting places of God in the land. Flick forward a couple of Psalms to Psalm 79. Psalm 79, verse 1. O God, the nations have come into your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have led Jerusalem in ruins. It's lamenting the destruction of Jerusalem. Add to this the fact that David is almost completely absent from book 3. His name only appears with Psalm 86. And then, and most devastatingly of all, Psalm 89 laments God's apparent abandoning of the Davidic king. Listen to these haunting words from Psalm 89, verses 38 to 45. But now you have cast off and rejected. You're full of wrath against your anointed. You've renounced the covenant with your servant. You've defiled his crown in the dust. You've breached all his walls. You've laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You've exalted the right hand of his foes. You've made all his enemies rejoice. You've also turned back the edge of his sword. You've not made him stand in battle. You've made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You've covered him with shame. And then in verse 49, Lord, where's your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Book 3 ends with this haunting question, Lord, where is your faithfulness? And it asks such a question because of exile. All the promises of God seem to be void. 
Book four begins to answer the provocative question with which book three ended. And it does so, first of all, by reminding readers that God once led his people through the wilderness, and so he can do it again. Look at Psalm 90, a psalm of Moses. Psalms 90, 91, 92 all have wilderness imagery in them. God can lead his people through another wilderness. Assurance is then given in book four that God is able to do this. In Psalms 93, 96, 97, 99, we read this repeated refrain, the Lord reigns. Despite what the circumstances look like, the Lord reigns. And then interestingly, David begins to appear again. Psalm 101 and 103 are credited to David. Psalm 101 is particularly striking. It speaks of a righteous king, just like the one we read of in Psalms 1 and 2, perhaps. And then book 4 ends with four long psalms, Psalm 104, 105, 106, all of which, if you take the time to read them, reaffirm God is faithful. Despite the devastation of exile, book four plants seeds of hope that God remains faithful. And book five then brings that storyline to a culmination by promising a new Davidic king. David pervades book five. Psalms 108, 109, 110, 122, 124, 131, 133. Psalms 138 through to 145, all connected to David. He's reappearing. The far side of the exile, there's hope for this new Davidic king. There's also an atmosphere of jubilation and praise in book 5 that isn't as pronounced elsewhere in the Psalter. The Hebrew term hallelujah appears in Psalms 111, 112, 113, 115, 116, 117, 135, that conclusion that we looked at earlier. And all of this praise seems to be linked to deliverance that will come through a new Davidic king. Psalm 110, for example, tells us that he will be a mighty warrior and an eternal priest who will defeat our enemies. Psalm 132 is particularly striking. Turn there with me. Psalm 132 tells us that the God will be faithful to his promise to place a Davidic king on the throne forever. Look at verses 11 and 12 of Psalm 132. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set in your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also, for, also forever shall sit on your throne. Verses 17 and 18. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. The promised king who will reign righteously forever is coming. If you know your Old Testament well, you'll recognize that the book of Psalms is a poetic companion to the Old Testament. The five books trace the storyline of the Old Testament, the rise of David and his kingdom, the fall of that kingdom, and the subsequent wrestling with God's faithfulness. 
laced with praise and anticipation of God keeping these promises. This is the mesmerizing, awe-inspiring, completely altering beauty of seeing all 150 Psalms together. Step two is complete. Are you still with me? I think I've picked up a few since last time. So what, what relevance does all of this have? What difference does this make to you and to me today? Is this just me spouting some interesting stuff, or is it relevant? Well, step three, the relevance of this for us today. And I want to make four brief comments here. The, the book of Psalms, as a book, assures us that God directs human history. The Psalms are unique in that while they're God's word to us today, they originated as man's words to God. But this very fact teaches us something about the mindset of the people who wrote these Psalms and the reality of this world in which we live. God directs human history. If if the authors of the Psalms did not believe this to be true, they would not have cried out to him. But considering the Psalms as a book, as a whole, helps us to better grasp this reality. Get prepared to flick through these Psalms with me once more. In book one, it is consistently David, it is consistently God who aids David in his battle against the wicked. Flick to Psalm 18, and we'll read just the first three verses there. David looks to God. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised and I am saved from my enemies. God consistently aids David in his battle against the wicked. In book two, flick forward to Psalm 44. In book two, it is God who rescues his people from its enemies. Psalm 44 and verses four through to eight. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hate us. In God we have boasted continually, and we will give thanks to your name forever. Selah. In book three, in the wake of the exile, The psalmist then exclaims this in Psalm 77. Psalm 77, verses 1 and 2. God's promises seem to be not. And the psalmist says, I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. They're turning to God again and again and again. Let me force this point home. Turn to book four, Psalm 105. 
as hope is once more ignited, that God will keep His promises. Psalm 105, verses 1 and 2. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon His name. Make known His deeds among the peoples. Sing to Him. Sing praises to Him. Tell of all His wondrous works. And then in book 5, it is all praise for God's great deeds. Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. Throughout the centuries, from the embryonic kingdom to the dismembered state and disarray, God directs human history, caring for, protecting, sustaining his people. No matter what the circumstances, God is directing human history. Look at the world today. Is it any different? Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, but God is faithful through it all. He is consistently at work, and the Psalms show us that. No matter what part of the storyline is, it is God to whom the psalmists turn. The small town of Cove in County Cork is famous for being the Titanic's final stop before its fatal sailing across the Atlantic. Cove is a small harbor town on a steep hill that slopes down to the sea. And at the top of the hill stands St. Coleman's Cathedral, a massive, imposing building that towers over the entire town. No matter where you are in the town, you can see this cathedral at the top of the hill looming over all of it. As we read the Psalms, this is one of the images of God that emerges. He towers over human history as the main actor. What a comfort to us as we face the tumult of life. No matter what tomorrow brings, God directs human history. The book of Psalms then also mirrors the full range of human experience. The Psalms are famous for their emotion. It's not simply that as poetry they capture human emotion accurately, but they possess the full range of emotions. But we need to read them all to feel this. Try reading Psalm 148 the day that your spouse dies. Psalm 148. Verses 1 through 4. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise Him in the highest. Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. Praise Him, all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and your waters above the heavens. It doesn't work. Not in the midst of grief. There's a disconnect. You need different words for that day. Or or, or try reading Psalm 88, the day a friend that you've been praying for for years is finally converted. You've been praying for years, you get the news that they're converted, and you read, Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors, I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me, your dreadful assaults destroy me. 
doesn't work. There's a disconnect. Focusing on one single psalm does not capture the full range of human experience, but reading the psalms as a book does. The book of Psalms mirrors the full range of human experience when read in its entirety. And this helps calibrate us. It offers ballast and balance to life. When we're in the pits of despair, the Psalms not only give us language to articulate how we feel, but it offers hope that there's better days to come. When we're soaring in joy, the book of Psalms not only offers us songs to praise and sing to God, but cautions us that that life will not always be so in this world. It reminds us that life is to be viewed in the long term. No single day and its feelings and its events determine our experience for the whole of life and eternity. Read the Psalms as a book and you'll know that, that nothing you face is unique and that nothing you face will last forever. Life, like the book of Psalms, ebbs and flows. Reading all 150 together helps us see that. Third thing to say is that the book of Psalms trains us to look for a new Davidic king. So we outlined the story of the book of Psalms earlier. I hope it became clear that One of the driving forces of the shape of the book is the hope for a new Davidic king. Like like those rescue dogs that were active in Turkey after the catastrophic earthquake. Those dogs that have been trained to, to seek that which is most important, signs of life under the rubble. So the book of Psalms trains us to seek that which is most important. Trains us to hunt for it, to look for it, to pursue it with all we have. So let me ask, where's your gaze focused this morning? On money? On self? On family? On work? On fame? On comfort? Reading the the book of Psalms in its entirety trains us to lift our eyes a little higher, to look for the new Davidic king. Our New Testaments make it clear that this new Davidic king is Jesus Christ. Jesus himself and the book of Hebrews both apply Psalm 110 to him. If you want to see that Jesus is of utmost importance, read through all 150 Psalms because they train you to look for a new Davidic king. The book of Psalms is like biblical WD-40, loosening our ties to this world, our attachment to lesser things, and forcing us to look to something greater, to someone greater. Those who are not yet Christians are often told to read the Gospels first. If you want to read something in the Bible, read the Gospels, the lives of Jesus, the life of Jesus. That's good advice. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian, you should do that. But I want to add that you should read all 150 Psalms one after another. Because it trains you to look for this Jesus. This King who has come and won victory for us over sin and death. And yet our looking for Jesus is not yet done because he will return again. That's the final thing I want to leave with you. The book of Psalms trains us for this world to come that Jesus will bring with him. When Jesus returns, he will bring this world to an end. He will establish the new heavens and the new earth. And the book of Psalms trains us for that world yet to come. 
There's a general movement across the five books of the Psalms from proportionately more laments at the beginning to proportionately more praise in the latter books. And this movement prepares us for the life yet to come. Life to be lived in a world where there's no pain, no sickness, no sorrow, no sin. Book five acts as a travel guide acclimatizing us to this world that is yet to come. This world in which there's nothing to cause lament and everything to provoke praise. And so just like we might pick up our travel guide to Dublin or London or Paris or New York before we visit those cities, so we should be picking up the Psalms before we go to that world that is yet to come. It trains us for that world. The the book of Psalms poetically retells the story of Israel in such a way that assures us that, that God directs human history in such a way that shows us that that it has the full range of human experience, in such a way that it trains us to look for this new Davidic king, in such a way that it trains us for the world yet to come. Like a snowflake, each individual psalm is a masterpiece in its own right, worthy of concentrated study to unearth all of its beauty. But piecing that individual psalm together with the other 149, just like adding that single snowflake to a billion others, well, it reveals a new landscape, a world with a beauty of a different order. Let's pray. If nothing else, Father, this morning reaffirms that we will never plumb the depths of your word. It is majestic. It is wonderful. It is true and it is accurate. And it is profitable for us. And so, Father, we pray that through what we have explored this morning, that we will have grown in our love and adoration of who you are that our appreciation of what you have done in King Jesus for us will be deepened, and that by the power of your Spirit, you would equip us to be people who know your word and live your word for your glory and for your honor. Amen. Davey, thank you so much for serving us so well this morning. I hope that's given you a real hunger uh, to get into the Psalms afresh. Um, But we're going to respond now by singing together of the wonderful, steadfast, faithful mercy of the Lord. This is our response, so let's stand together and rejoice.
may the Lord bless you and keep you and make his face to shine on you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Well, please.